if you notice when you came in, this is a group of people that are very, very happy to see each other. They love each other. We are happy to be together. And uh, we want to invite you to be a part of that. Um, we, we have a, a lunch that's going to be prepared at, uh, or that is prepared rather, at, at noon over here. When we get done, you just go in there, and uh, that's for visitors, new members, or college students. And so if you fit into one of those categories, go over there because people would like to get to know you. People would like to connect with you. And so I hope that you'll take advantage of that. Um, if you are visiting with us, let me tell you what you've stumbled into because another way we're not normal is, is uh, we're, we're talking about money and you're not supposed to do that because, um, you know, that's something that's a little bit too personal. We don't like to do that. But like I said, we ain't normal. Um, we are in the middle of a series we're calling In God We Trust. And the idea there is that our giving is, is uh, a, an act of worship. God has, from the beginning, asked us to give and, and, and bring sacrifices to Him, going back to the very first act of worship recorded in the Bible, which was Cain and Abel. And so it's an integral part of who we are, and that's why we're looking at that. We're looking at the picture of, of what that looks like. And so um, we're, we're, gonna, we're in our third week of that this week, and this week we're talking about why me. You ever ask why me? Um, if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, we all do that at some point. You know, you, you wake up in the morning and, um, oh, I don't know, the, the, the hot water heater has leaked all over the laundry room and, and the air conditioner has gone out and, and you go outside and the, the animals have strewn your trash all over the yard and you get in the car to go to work and the car won't start. And you go, why me? It's one of those days. Or, uh, you know, we could go through a hundred scenarios, but at, at some point, all of us ask, why me? Why is this happening to me? Let me read you a quote. Dr. Dale Turner uh, was writing in a, in a magazine, and, and this is what he writes. We take for granted 100 days of perfect health and then grumble about one day of aches and pains. We drive the freeway hundreds of times without incident and then ask, why me, the one time we have a flat tire or engine trouble? We casually accept the fact that our family's together for the holidays, but when we're separated, we dwell on our loneliness. How often do we say, why me, as we count our blessings? Rather than feeling sad about what we don't have, doesn't it make more sense to feel a kind of rollicking rejoicing over everything we do have? And, and we make no mistake about it, we have a lot. We don't realize, I think, how much that we actually have. There was a recent global study of wealth that, that uh, included 111 countries, um, which accounted for 88% of the global population. I know you can't read that, but I'm just telling you I'm not making it up. It, it divided people into five income groups, people who are poor, and they defined poor as living on less than $2 a day. People who are low income was $2 to $10 a day. Middle income was $10 to $20 a day. Upper middle income was $20 to $50 a day. And high income was more than $50 a day. The global middle income range translates to an annual income, an annual income of around $14,500, while upper middle class is about $29,000 a year. That's for a family of four, not individual. An income, uh, an income uh, of anything above $35,000 a year would put you 
in the global 1% of the richest in the world. Wow. We got a lot, right? The U.S. stands head and shoulders above the rest of the world. More than, more than half, over, over 56% of Americans were considered high income or that global 1%. Um, th this is amazing. Because we don't realize how blessed we are. Even the people who are poor in our society, most of whom in America would be considered middle income in the rest of the world. And, and we don't ask, why me? Why was I born here? Why did I get the, 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 the birth lottery and end up in, in America instead of in some third world country? Why do I have the education or the job opportunities or, or whatever it is that I've received when so many others did not? We, we don't ask why me about that. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to start because Paul gives us an answer to this question to why me 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 uh, in verse 9 is where we're going to start and then we're going to go back and forth so just stay there but 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 Paul says for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that through that you through his poverty might become rich Paul says the answer of, of what did I do to deserve this is nothing. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve anything that you have. We don't deserve anything that we have. We are not more holy. We are not more righteous. We are not more deserving than any of these other peoples throughout the world. The answer, Paul would say, is grace. The, the, the definition of grace that I grew up with was unmerited favor. You remember that? Did anybody ever, else ever hear it? Thank you for nodding. Um, make me feel less crazy. But the, the, the unmerited favor. Now, Jesus' definition of grace was a lot less churchy than that. Jesus' definition of grace was like a lost coin. Like a person who loses a coin and they turn the house upside down and then they find it and they celebrate. Jesus' definition of grace was, was a, a shepherd who, if we're honest, I don't want to be blasphemous, but if we're honest, was very irresponsible and unprofessional to leave 99 sheep unattended while he went looking for one. That's not good business practice. But that's Jesus' definition of grace. Jesus' definition of grace is a, a younger son who, who manipulates his father into getting his inheritance early and then goes and blows it all and then comes home expecting to be received, but is not only received, he is celebrated by his father. The, the, one of the best stories about grace, it sounds a lot like Jesus' story, but this one came from the Boston Globe a few years ago. Um, a, a woman and her fiancé went to the, the Hyatt Hotel, which is a, a posh hotel in downtown Boston. And they were getting ready for their uh, wedding. And they wanted to, to create a, a wedding banquet. 
And so they sat down and, and they, they met with the wedding planner who there, who the event organizer, and they booked the ballroom and they, they chose the, the finest china and they chose the silver and they chose the, the place settings and the decorations. And then they sampled all the food and, and they both had pretty expensive tastes. So the, their food was, was pretty lavish and, and uh, their choices were pretty extravagant. When they got through... Uh, choosing everything that they chose, their bill for this meal, for this banquet, came to around $25,000. Now, the, the down payment to secure that was half of that number, and so they paid half as the down payment and left to go continue picking out invitations and doing all the things that wedding planning couples do. Time went by, and as time drew closer, the groom got cold feet. He started saying, well, I, don't, I think we're rushing into this. It's going a little too fast. I don't know if I can do this. Maybe we need to wait a while. And eventually, he broke off the engagement. Now, his fiancée, angry and brokenhearted, returns to the Hyatt and sits down with the event planner, and she tells her this story. The event planner is very sympathetic. She says, let me tell you, it happened to me, and, and I understand how you feel. I'm, I'm with you. The problem is, is that your contract is binding. There is no way that I'm able to give you back your deposit. So your choices are to go through with the dinner or to just forfeit that $12,000. Well, the young lady struggled with the decision for a while, but the more she thought about it, the more she finally decided, you know what, I'm going to go through with this. It seemed crazy, but she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. About 10 years before, she had been living in a shelter for women there in Boston. And she was one of those success stories. She had uh, pulled herself up. She had, she had become successful. She had got a good job and, and had moved herself up, taken herself out of that. And she had the crazy idea of using her money, of using her wealth that she had accumulated now to throw a huge party for all those who were in the same place that she was then. All the, the down and outs of Boston. And so in June of that year at the Elegant Hyatt Hotel in beautiful downtown Boston, they hosted a party the likes of which the Hyatt had never seen. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. And... Um, <laughs> And, and invited everyone from shelters, from, from homeless uh, uh, places, from people that serve the homeless, from, from all the down and outs, all the people she could think of throughout Boston. And so that night, all these people who were accustomed to, to scraping half-gnawed pizza crusts off of cardboard boxes they dragged out of a garbage can were instead dining on chicken cordon bleu served on China with silver that they had probably never touched before in their life. Bag ladies, vagrants, addicts all took the night off from the, the hard life of the street and they sipped champagne. They danced to big band melodies. And, and we like that story because it sounds a lot like a Jesus story. Jesus told a story about a wedding banquet that ended up inviting all those. But it, either way, it's a story of grace. Once 
there was a, a, a symposium in Britain of comparative religions. And so there were a bunch of, of theologians and scholars all meeting in this one place. And during the course of their conversation, they started arguing about what was Christianity's unique contribution to world religions. Was it the incarnation? No, there were other religions that had had God uh, coming down to, to be with people. Was it, was it the resurrection? Well, no, there are other religions that, that had had people being raised from the dead. And during this conversation, the, the story goes that C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and they told him what they were arguing about and, and told him they were looking at what was Christianity's unique contribution. Lewis fam famously says, uh, oh, that's easy, grace. Grace. And the more they thought about it, the more they realized he was right. The notion that God's love is free of charge, no strings attached, is unique to Christianity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the, the, the Hindu karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, all have ladders and hierarchies whereby you can earn your way into God's favor, where you can do things that merit deserving forgiveness, deserving being, being saved. And, and Christianity makes God's love unconditional. And when we get that, when we understand that, it changes everything. Grace changes everything. When we fully understand that there is absolutely nothing that I can do to make myself righteous, when I fully get that, that there is absolutely nothing that Jeff can do to earn his salvation. When I grasp that, that being dunked in the water or saying a sinner's prayer or coming to church every week or any of that stuff is not going to save me. The only thing that can save me is the grace of God. When I get that, when I understand that, that having a Sunday school or a fellowship hall or one cup in communion has nothing to do with my forgiveness, when I understand that worshiping without a piano or worshiping in a building with the right name on the sign has nothing to do with whether I'm saved, when I get that, then I begin to understand grace. And when I understand grace, it changes everything. Because none of it is mine. There's nothing that belongs to me. My house is not mine. My car is not mine. My body is not mine. The very breath that I breathe is not mine. It all belongs to God. When I get that, then I'm understanding grace. And Paul says that understanding grace, understanding that and having that attitude rooted in grace is the basis for our giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, the churches in Macedonia were, were afflicted and impoverished. They were struggling. They were having trouble making ends meet. But God turned that poverty into, into an abundance of joy. See, nobody's after your money. God is after your heart. Because a heart filled with grace, a heart that understands that nothing that I have from my very breath to the coins in my pocket, nothing is mine, can't help but overflow in generosity. Verse 5 says that a heart given to God is a heart that gives to others. See, Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he never has our hearts and not our money. Our money is intertwined with our soul. One statistic that I read recently said Americans spend nearly 50% of our time thinking about money, either getting it or spending it. Now, I don't know if that statistic is true, but I do know that handling our money is an integral part of our lives. And as we've stated throughout this series, our money is a barometer of our hearts. What I do with my money determines what's important to me. In chapter 9, Paul's going to carry this idea over and get to the point. Chapter 9, 2 Corinthians, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, if you've been around here very long, you know that one of my pet peeves is prosperity gospel preachers. Um, I think this is a heresy. I, I think it's something that's plaguing the church, and it is corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pretty blunt about that. But here's what prosperity gospel preachers do get right. God does want to bless you. God does want to bless me. God does want to lavish my life. He does want me to abound but not to abound so that my 401k is bigger or that I drive a fancier car or can buy a bigger house. He wants me to abound for His glory. He wants to bless me so that I can bless others and by that it will be translated into thanksgiving and glory given to God. Chapter 9 verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God wants to bless you so that you turn around and bless others. Paul's going to finish up in verse 11 through 14 saying, You will be enriched in every way. God wants to bless you. To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. God wants to make us rich so that we can be richly generous. 
God wants us to give beyond our means, not just of our means, in order to grow His kingdom, in order to bring glory to His name, in order to bless others so that thanksgiving flow to Him, and other people, those who are blessed by that generosity, will glorify His name. So our giving, our contribution, is not about keeping the lights on or keeping church open. That's not what it's about. Our giving is about bringing glory to God. Our giving is about causing people to be blessed and, and in extension, overflowing that grace that has been given to me onto others so that they glorify and give thanksgiving to God. Because did you catch this at the end? Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. See, a heart full of grace is a heart overflowing with generosity. When I realize that nothing belongs to me, when nothing is mine, not one single thing, not one penny, it's all God's, I start to realize even my best offering is pitiful. One year for my birthday, my daughter surprised me, woke me up, and they had a gift for me. And I was, I was excited to get their gift. And, and they brought in this this. Ziploc baggie that was full of change. Quarters, nickels, dimes, pennies. I don't know how much was in there. That they had taken the jar that was on my dresser and dumped it and filled that into a Ziploc bag, and that was their gift to me. Now, here's the deal that's us and God, y'all. We take everything that's God's. And we say, here's a little bit of your stuff back. And, and, and we don't understand that just like a father, just like I, I love that gift. He's thrilled with that. There's a great story in 2 Kings 7 of four lepers who sat at the gate of Samaria at a time when the city was under siege. Things had gotten so bad inside the city that, that women were eating their own children to survive. Elisha the prophet had predicted that, that the next day, food would be plentiful and affordable in Samaria. People thought he was crazy. Meanwhile, the four lepers had evaluated their dismal situation and decided that if they stayed at the gate, they're going to starve. If they go over to the enemy camp that's laying siege, then they may be killed, but how's that any worse than starving to death so there's an outside chance that maybe the enemy will take them captive and if they do at least maybe they'll feed us so they go over to the enemy camp and they take their chances and when they get there they're shocked to find the camp completely deserted the Bible says the Lord had caused the enemy to hear the sound of a great army coming in the night and in the darkness they had fled in panic and had fought with one another and, and had left all their supplies behind and so these four beggars sit down in this empty camp and they start eating everything they can hold. They're making themselves sick with everything that they're eating. They start hauling away and hiding loads of, of silver and gold and clothes and all this stuff. But eventually their consciences begin to gnaw at them. And they say, we're not doing right. See, this is a day of good news and we're keeping this all to ourselves. So they went and told the starving city where they could find the abundant supplies to satisfy their needs. See, 
That story illustrates a message that's heard over and over and over in the Bible. It's not ours. We're just giving it back to God. And when I keep it for myself, I'm hoarding the good news. I'm hoarding the gospel. Zechariah 8 verse 13 is an example of that. He says, I will save you that you may become a blessing. See, a heart overwhelmed by the wonderful grace of God cannot help but overflow with grace toward others. When I finally understand grace, I can't help but offer it to everybody I come across. And when I realize that everything that I have is only by the grace of God, then all of a sudden, it's not my stuff anymore. This morning, I, I hope you hear this call, that a heart that understands grace is a heart overflowing with generosity. I hope you hear the call of this message. It's, it's not a call to give. It's not a call about money. That's not the point. The point is, you need to come and experience the wonderful grace of God. I told you that we're not normal, and I mean that. Because we're not calling you to become a member of the church of Christ. We're not calling you to come and be added to this body. We are saying we have found the gift. We have found the empty camp. We have found the treasure. We have been blessed. We're just a bunch of beggars too. We found the treasure. We want to share it with the world. We want to offer you the grace of Jesus Christ. This morning, the way you accept that is you come to Him, you confess His name publicly, that you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You repent, that means you turn away from the way we're living right now, and you submit to Him in baptism. You're raised to a new life. God says you receive forgiveness of sins, and what's more, you receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead comes to give strength and life to your mortal body. This morning, it's not about anything you do. It's about accepting the grace of Jesus. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's freely given to you. You just have to accept it. Won't you accept that gift? Won't you come right now while together we stand and sing?